So if you're interested in that retreat, that will be taking place um, the weekend of the 20th. So it starts, what, 17th to the 20th? Okay. So that will be happening. If you have any ideas of places for us to meet, you know, like if you have an office space at a big warehouse or something, you know, let us know. Because there might be a place that we can use. So um, keep that in mind. Um, those are things that are really important. We are, the admin stuff is really being taken care of. I'm, Clifton isn't here because he doesn't want to be embarrassed last time around, but give him a pat on the back. He has been a machine uh, working and putting together all of the admin stuff for us. And um, we had childcare first hour, and we're hoping that He's been a baby about it the whole time. Soon. And Joey's working on that, but we need space. So there we get back to that whole thing of getting the space. Um, Joey's also going to be putting together some small groups, and some people are already in small groups. Uh, we'll honor that, but uh, people that aren't, we're going to try to make sure we get a list of everybody and get everybody, give everybody the opportunity to be into something so we can all get to know each other and grow as a church. And then finally, I, I finished writing the bylaws, the Constitution bylaws yesterday, and it's still a work in progress. It's still a little bit rough draft and we're fine-tuning it, but we're far enough along where uh, next week I'm going to share with you our vision, mission, and values. You know, we'll talk about that the next few weeks. We're hopeful. We actually have sent this, I sent this out to church consultant to look at some of it too, but we're hoping in the next few weeks we'll kind of unfold this for you. That sound good? Kind of exciting, and then we can have a meeting where we, you know, come together and affirm it all as, uh, as membership and as a team. So we're getting there. Things are coming together. And I, I just seems like I'm forgetting something because we have so much going on and there's so many things to catch you up on. But especially I want to thank you for being so flexible and working so well. It's been a lot of fun with all of you. Um, I know what I did want to say is we had um, some things we need to pray for. I want to pray for, uh, pray for Jeff Grubbs. He's been going through some very serious chemotherapy. If you know Jeff, be praying for him as he's going through this at this time. And then I also have um, some bad news, and you may already know this if you've been on Facebook, but um, Dan Pops Purdue passed away uh, yesterday, um, and so that was really hard. Uh, some of you, I don't know how many of you knew Dan, but he's been involved in this community for a long time. He was a close friend of mine, and it's really tough, but uh, he went to be with the Lord, and, uh, and we'll share more later, but it was really pretty, pretty dramatic ending for him. He had kind of a vision. Um, he felt, you know, it seemed like he saw, saw the Lord and his son, and uh, then went peacefully. And so uh, his family is grateful for that. I've been in touch with Bonnie and Sarah. They're living in Missouri now, but they're produced, but they're coming here for the memorial. So we'll keep you posted on what happened. All right? So we have that, and I think we need to pray. We need to pray for this place, Cloverland, too, because they're letting us use their place, and we're really grateful for that. Let's pray. Father, um, we pray for Jeff, that you give him strength today. He's not with us, and I know he's hurting bad. So we pray that uh, you would be the one who would comfort him and give him the strength that he needs to get through this treatment and bring healing to his body. And we pray for the Purdue family once again, uh, for comfort for, for Bonnie and for Sarah, for Tyler, for Spencer, for the uh, extended friends and family, um, the spiritual kids that he basically you know, took care of. And so, so many people, myself included, were, were touched by his life. And so I thank you so much for this very special man. And, uh, Pray that you would continue to be of comfort to his family. Thank you for peacefully taking you home. And uh, Lord, we pray for Cloverland. We pray that we thank you for the, the principal here who's a follower of Christ. And we pray that this uh, school would continue to have an impact for you in a lot of ways. That people would actually um, uh, see Christ in the lives of those who know you that are teachers here. And that you would have an impact on the lives of the kids. Help them be well educated and help them be well in school and life. And 
pray that you would take care of the physical needs of this building and, and this place. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity to teach about you today and pray for your guidance and the words that are spoken that uh, it would be just speaking back to you what you've been teaching me and an opportunity for us all to listen in and to learn. We pray that in your name. Amen. Now, I am, I'm wondering, like, if I speak at this level, can you all hear me? You can hear me from the back really well. I go, oh, I go, hi, and you, you can hear me. Everything's good. Okay, we're good. We're good to go. How many people like chick flicks? Raise your hand if you're a chick flick fan. Some people are kind of looking like, I don't want to raise my hand, but then they raise their hand. Hey, guys, are you secure enough? You know what I mean? There you go. In the back, Jacob. He, he, he has, he's secure with his masculinity. Um, yeah, I think I grew up with two sisters, and then now I have a wife, a daughter, and a dog who thinks he's a daughter. And, uh, and they watch these things, and I'm walking every once in a while to see them. And yeah, they can be fun and funny. I've noticed, though, that they have some recurrent themes. And one of the big themes that's recurrent, okay, is that there's this guy who's really slick. And he's really cool, but you find out that he has some flaws in his character, right? He's not really a good guy. And that's who she likes. But then she's introduced to this other guy who can't, you know, hardly tie his shoes or tie his tie, and his hair is always messed up or whatever. But he has what? He has a good, he has a good heart, right? He has a good heart. So he's, he's, the, he's the heart guy. And you think, oh, wow. And so you're watching it, and you start thinking, oh, I want, I want yeah, her to like him. I want her to like him. And they kind of lead you down that path, right? And you oh, my goodness, oh, I think you're going to fall in love with you. You know, it gets all exciting. And then it always has an ending. Where does this thing always end? Almost always, nine out of ten times, it ends at the wedding. You ever notice that? It always ends at the wedding. It always ruins somebody's wedding. So all this money and years are going to get married, and all of a sudden she looks at him and she says, I've just discovered I don't really love you. And then he'll say, oh, that's okay, because I actually love her. And then we have a happy ending. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how often that happens? There is something to be said, however, about having a good heart, right? You want to choose a man, ladies, who has a good heart, first and foremost. And God is all about choosing people who have good hearts to do service for him. And that's going to be especially true today as we're going to be talking about David. He had a good heart, and that's why God chose him to be the king over Israel. But we've been doing a series on David's life, and we went back to the political background of David. And as we're talking about the political background of David, we, we talked about the king at the time. The king was who? King? Remember the king? Saul. King Saul was the king of Israel. He was this big guy, and he was this incredible warrior. He led Israel in battle, but he wasn't leading them back to God. And they were kind of in a spiritual recession. They were struggling because Saul was very gifted, and I believe a follower of God, but as he got into a position of power, he was not the man that God initially wanted. God had told Israel to wait, but Israel wanted a king, so he gave him the king of the hour, and that was Saul. And Saul had a pride issue, right? Maybe even Larson. And so Saul doesn't follow what God says, and he gets in trouble with his kingdom, and things are falling apart. And his dynasty is taken away from him. And Samuel says, I'm going to take your dynasty away from you in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And he says, God told me I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to give it to a man after my own heart. Okay? And so in chapter 15, he fails again to follow God. And this time Samuel says, I'm going to take your kingdom away. I'm going to give it to this man I've been talking to you about. I'm going to give it to him. Most people in Israel, they don't, they don't have, you know, CNN or Fox News or anything like that. They can't. They don't know what's going on. It's just word of mouth. 
So they know there's tension. They know that Samuel and Saul aren't talking to each other anymore, the great prophet and the great king. But they don't know what the problem is. There's no war, so most of the guys that are in the army are back at home until they're summoned by Saul. And life is going on like usual for 15-year-old David at his home in Bethlehem with his family. His older brothers fight for Saul, but they're home right now. And that's how things are going when the story begins at this point. You ready? We're going to talk about how God chooses a king after his own heart. And what he does, uh, first of all, is he has Samuel go to the sons, to, to, to Jesse in Bethlehem. He sends it to Jesse in Bethlehem to talk to him about this. He doesn't reveal who it's going to be yet, but he says it's going to be one of his sons. So we'll pick that up in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through um, uh, one through 5. And if you don't have a Bible, would like one, raise your hand. We have some Bibles you can borrow here. And, um, so, so we have some here, so just raise your hand. We have, have them in your hand now. Okay? Uh, one on the front here. Um, okay, so we'll get started. It says, the Lord, it's all capitalized, so in Hebrew that means what? Yahweh, the self-existent God of the universe, the one who's always existed, exists, and will always exist. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Um, I, like, I like the fact that Saul is mourning. Doesn't that kind of, you know, Saul, I mean Samuel's mourning, that Samuel's mourning for Saul. It, it shows that a sensitivity on his part. It shows that he really cared about Israel and he really cared about Saul. You know, he's thinking about what would have, could have, or should have been. And that's not put down by God. God says, you know, you need to move on now. But it's a, it's, a, it's a neat thing when a person in leadership has that kind of sensitivity. And I, and I can relate to it some in my own heart, and you may too, some of you, you know, in the whole way that things have come about here. We're really excited about our new church, but there's some bittersweet things that have happened. And there are people I'm praying about from the past, and there's things that would have, could have, or should have happened that are hurtful. Uh, and yet at the same time, uh, I hear God saying to me, so to speak, Ron, it's time to move on. It's like, like he said to Paul. Remember what Paul himself says in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. He says, this, this thing I, one, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and uh, straining for what, toward what is ahead, I press on for the goal of the prize which God has called me heavenward for in Christ Jesus. Time to move on. It's okay to mourn about things and pray about things, but we still need to move on. Time comes to move on. And that's what Samuel's being told. Time's come to move on, Samuel. It's time to move on to the next plan. And the next plan in the life, in your case, is to anoint a new king. So fill your horn. He doesn't go down to Staples and get a plastic container. They don't have that. You know, he has a hollowed out horn, and he fills it up with probably spiced olive oil. And he puts it in there, gets it all ready to go, and he's going to take it with him to do some anointing. So he's going to have him anoint. It doesn't say here, later they use the word anoint. And the word anoint is the word messiah, which, from which we get messiah. And that's also, in Christos is the Greek translation for Christ. And so what they're saying here is Jesus' name is the anointed one. Do you know that? His name means anointed one. So... In America, three positions, right? What, what are the three branches? American history students, what are they? Legislative, judicial, and what else? 
the executive, right? Three branches. When those guys come in, they put their hands usually on a Bible, and they raise their hand, and they swear in office, right? In Israel, the three high positions, prophet, priest, and king. If you're going to become a prophet, priest, or king, the pro a prophet would, would pour, or priest would, would take an ointment and pour it over your head. Would take, it would anoint you with this oil. That's how they did it. Okay? And so that's what he's going to do now. He's going to make David the new king. So he's going to go ahead and do that, but he's, he's told he's got to go first to see this guy Jesse. And by the way, he says that he's chosen him, he, and, and the word chosen is the same as seen. He's seen in advance this is going to happen. Before the world began, God foresaw this moment. Before the world began, God determined that David was one day going to be king of Israel. That's kind of one of those things that kind of just chills. You know? I mean, he, God had all this in control. And so he says, go to Jesse in Bethlehem. Now, if you remember, our first book, our, the, first, the first of the messages that we have in the series of David, we talked about his background. A very, very dark time spiritually. A really hard time in Israel. And God raised up two wonderful people, and their names were, they got married, remember? Ruth and Boaz. Right, Boaz. And so those two guys got together. They got married. Uh, we said it was a little bit like an ancient chick flick, that story. They got married, and they had a grandson out of that, and their grandson was Jesse. Jesse's actually their grandson. David's their great-grandson. And so David, Jesse comes from this great lineage. And uh, he lives in Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. Uh, probably a lot of grain fields around it. It used to be known as the town of Ephrath. Ephrath and then they changed it into Bethlehem for whatever reason. And so that's where they lived. It's a little village at that point, fairly insignificant. About five miles south of Jerusalem, which wasn't really a good thing in those days because Jerusalem was being ruled by barbarians known as Jebusites. And that's where they're at, okay? That's where these guys are living, and that's where he's going to have to go. Now, that city is destined to be known as the town of David, because, you know, David lives there, and it also is the birthplace of his most famous descendant, who is Jesus, the little town of Bethlehem, okay? And so that's where he's going to go. Now, this is how Samuel responds. He says in verse uh, 2, But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So, um, what's happening here is Samuel's afraid. And you know, this is the picture. Samuel lives in Ramah, and he's going to Bethlehem, and in order to get there, he needs to go through Gibeah, and guess who lives in Gibeah? Saul. So here's the deal. You're walking through Gibeah, and the king comes up to you and says, what are you doing? He said, and you say, oh, I have oil, and I'm going over to Bethlehem to anoint a new king to replace you. And what's the king going to say? You're not going to make it, buddy. Too bad. Your, your journey just ended. Okay? And, and he knew that would happen because, as we'll see later in the stories on David, Saul had a violent temper. And he's very jealous and very insecure. And so he knew he was in trouble. Let, let's paint the picture a little bit of what's going on here. Um, Saul, Samuel, is an old man. But he's a dis, kind of a distinguished old prophet. Uh, I like the way Mitch uh, described him. And, and the Trilogy of Rings, if you ever watch this Trilogy of Rings, it's kind of like that kind of scene. He's got, you remember Gandalf? He's like Gandalf in you. 
you've ever seen those things. He's like the stately old prophet, probably maybe tall and lean with long light beard, who knows. But he's he's kind of this old, distinguished guy. And, and in his day, he was sort of like, in our day, the closest thing we have by comparison in America would probably be Billy Graham. Kind of tall, a little bit stooped, thick white hair, kind of the old prophet, you know, of the land. And that's how this guy is. And he's coming through the land. And then there is Saul. Saul is a head taller than everybody else in Israel. So Saul would have been, you know, maybe seven feet today, something like that. And, and he would have been big, but they don't mention him as being particularly large. He maybe was long and sinewy, maybe 250, 270 pounds. That's a big dude. Long arms, good basketball player probably, um, but even better in fighting. Can you imagine if you have a long sword and you have that long of a wingspan? Who's going to get close to you? I mean, he was probably very agile and quick. He was a very dynamic warrior. But now, if you figure out the timing, Saul was supposed to be 30, I think when they called him, you can go back and look at that in chapter 9 or 10, I think he was like 30 years of age. And they, they figured, if you figure everything out, and others have done this, so I'm taking their word for it, they say it's about 25 years that he's been king. So he's about 55 years of age now. So he's gray, gray bearded, he's a little older than me. Um, he's an amazing physical specimen, but he's probably a little bent and beat up himself. And this is the picture of these two men. And he has this violent temper. And um, so God could have done something supernatural, but he says, just, it would be a good thing to have a sacrifice anyway. Take the heifer with you and have a sacrifice. Don't worry, he won't ask you for anything else. So he passes through peacefully, and uh, he comes to Bethlehem. Verse 4, Samuel did what Yahweh said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? They didn't have a mayor. They just had elders. You know, they were like older guys that are on a council that ran the town. Elder literally means bearded ones. So I got to grow a beard if I'm going to be an elder here. So they were bearded ones. They were older guys. Why would they be so afraid of Samuel? Do you remember what happened in our last story with Samuel? What did he do to a king? You remember at the end of that story? They brought a king before Samuel that God said that he needed to be executed. And who executed him? Samuel did, right? Well, he probably took a sword and he killed the guy right there in front of everybody. You know, who knows if he was an old guy, he may have hacked him. I don't know. It was a brutal thing. And the news got out. People knew there was tension. People knew that Samuel and Saul weren't talking. People knew that something was going on. They probably didn't have all the details. And they were afraid when he came to town. So he puts them at peace. And he says, in verse 5, Samuel replied, Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay. You're Jesse or his sons. What does that feel like? Imagine being invited to a small group with the leading elders in your little village to meet with the man who's the most respected man spiritually in your entire nation. A man which in those days, you know, they didn't have television and, and Facebook and things. They, they didn't have all the internet all the things that we have today. So these guys may have seen him in the war in the army, they might have seen him in the distance, but there were thousands of guys to actually have a private time with this guy. I remember we helped with Billy Graham um, a few times and I had some friends last time I was there, uh, I worked with him in San Diego, and I thought there was a chance I might get to meet him. Um, and our kids were sick, and I wasn't able to go, and never had that opportunity. But that'd be kind of a neat thing to meet somebody like that, wouldn't it? And just sit down and talk to them. 
And so these guys have that opportunity. Um, to consecrate themselves meant that they would confess their sins and get their hearts right. They would put on their nicest robes, so they'd probably go home and get the, the water out of the well and wash themselves down and clean as best they could, and then they put on their nicest robe. The weather's kind of like Southern California there. You know, it's pretty, pretty temperate, probably a little bit of a breeze. You have your robe on, and you walk in, and you see this stately but distinguished, ageable, white-bearded man. Can you imagine that scene? And you're thinking, what does he want for us? And now we're going to switch it, and we're going to see that God will reject all the oldest sons. He will reject all of Jesse's oldest sons. And we pick that up in verse 6. And now I want you to pretend that you're, that you're Samuel. Okay? Samuel sees these guys coming in. The language that will be used in Hebrew is like a courtroom. And in his eyes, he may see them almost as a courtroom. And it's as if God is right here to judge him. And he's listening to what God has to say. And he's watching these guys come in. And the first guy comes in as the oldest, and they were used to give him more preference in that culture. And he's a tall man, and he's handsome, and he looks like a warrior. In fact, he, like a king, he is a warrior. He's already fighting for Saul. It's like, it's done. I'm going to go home, make it home before nighttime, you know? I want to, I'm, I'm out of here. It's, this guy is the guy. But listen to what God says in this. It says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, whose name means God is my father. Kind of cool name. And he thought, surely Yahweh's anointing stands before Yahweh. But Yahweh said to him, and it's almost like he's talking to, to God in his mind. And God speaks back to his mind and to his ear and says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. And he says not to, to look at his appearance. His appearance literally means his eyes, his beautiful eyes. How many of you women are eyes men? You like guys with nice eyes. Good job. Yeah, I, I never had, I always had that problem. Um, but but, he, but I'm not guys with nice eyes, that's a, a sign of attractiveness, right? And so it can be synonymous with this was a good looking dude. Big, strong, strapping dude. And God says no. And God then gives him a lesson. And it's one of the neatest lessons in the Bible. He says, Yahweh does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. But Yahweh looks at the heart. Isn't that cool? God doesn't look at all the outside stuff. We watch these chick flicks and we sympathize with the guy with the heart, but that's because the script and the actors direct us to do that. In real life, we tend to not you know, look at people that way. We tend to judge people based on how they appear to us and what our thoughts are about them. And it's hard for us to, to not say, it's not about what they do, it's about who they are. It's not about what they look like, it's about who they are inside. Who are they really? What is, what is their heart on the inside? And God knows that, doesn't he? He knows exactly who we are. You can fool other people, but you can never fool God. My mom used to always tell me that, you know, you can go, go mess up as much as you want out of my presence, but God knows. Man, what a guilt trip for a kid. Um, but it kept me out of trouble. Um, so God knows what's, what's going on. Now he goes on and the rest of the sons, he says he rejects them all. And there's seven sons, so David would be the eighth son. So in case you were wondering, because some of you may have been reading this this morning, in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, I think it's verses 13 through 14, it gives a list of David's lineage and all of his brothers, and it says that there are six brothers, so there are seven of them. 
This passage says there were seven brothers, so there were eight of them. Does that mean that the Bible is therefore unreliable? What do you think? Can we answer this difficult question? Were there seven brothers or were there eight? Well, probably the easiest answer is that when they gave those genealogies, they didn't always include people that died young without offspring. They usually were looking at their offspring and counting all that. So it's very likely that David had one brother who died young without offspring. And so more likely this is the true count. There's nothing difficult about it. It's just there were eight brothers. And seven of them. Eight, seven brothers, eight of them in total. Now that's a lot of brothers to have. And that brings us to the next statement, the next point, where Samuel now has led directly to anoint David as king. Now, Samuel is puzzled, wouldn't you be? I mean, what's the likelihood of a mother you know, bearing seven sons, the perfect number? He probably figured that's it. But God says, no, it's none of these. And he's probably feeling kind of frustrated, too. What do you mean it's none of these? I came all this way, I risked my life, and it's none of them? And so he, and, and he's a little bit frustrated at Jesse, wondering, are you holding out on me? So he turns to Jesse, and, and he says, are these all the, uh, all the, the sons you have? And Jesse answered, there is still the youngest, and that literally means the smallest, probably in contrast with Paul, uh, or with Saul. And Jesus answered, but he is tending the sheep. Or he, and Jesse answered, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him, uh, we will not sit down until he comes. So the youngest is tending the sheep. Um, and it's kind of a cool picture of David, the whole idea of the, being the shepherd. Because Saul actually worked with donkeys. He was a donkey wrangler before he became king. And that uh, one scholar says that it sort of shows him as a stubborn man brought about by stubborn people. But David is the shepherd king. And he cares. He cares for his people. He's tender, loving, but strong. And it's a beautiful picture of what a leader should be like. And it becomes a kind of a light motif throughout his life, this recurrent theme that David is the shepherd. And later on, his most famous descendant, Jesus, is known in John chapter 10, verse 11, as the good shepherd. And, you know, even today, a pastor means shepherd. And so we get that whole style of leadership coming from David here in this passage. Um, the other thing that's interesting about David is he's 15 years old. Some people don't realize that. You know, he was only 15 years old. Any 15-year-old boys here today? I know there's a couple. Raise your hands in the back. We've got two of them. There's our David for today. So he's about the same age as those guys. Can you imagine that? He's, he's still pretty young. And so he says, this is the guy that I want to choose. And he comes in in verse 12. So he sat and he had, had him brought in. He was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. He was ready means that he was red. And we don't know what that literally means. Uh, it's probably his complexion, maybe talking about him being red because his, his cheeks were red um, from his youthfulness. Maybe he, um, maybe he had acne. No, <laughs> probably not. But, but his, head, his, his cheeks are red. Um, and that may point to you because his hair might have been red. I don't know what you think, but there's, there's something red. I tend to think it was just his complexion that he was younger. But then it says something very interesting. It says he had very beautiful eyes. It also says he's handsome. These two words are synonymous, and they're words for being attractive unusual that he would use the two words twice. And what it seems to emphasize is that David was an extraordinarily good-looking young man. And as one scholar would say, this will get him in trouble down the road. He was a very, very good-looking person. 
and he came into the room, and then Yahweh said, Rise and anoint him, he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers and the elders. They all made a circle probably around him. This kept it confidential, but also gave testimony that he really was to be the new king eventually. Um, it wouldn't happen for 15 years before he'd actually become the, the former king. But in God's eyes, he was the king. Um, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of Yahweh came upon David in power. And Samuel then went to Ramah. Um, God emphatically is one God. But it's interesting that throughout the Bible, he presents himself as God, the creator and father of the universe. And he presents himself as God, the son, Jesus Christ, who comes to live on, live on earth and die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave. And he presents himself as God, the Holy Spirit, who comes to live inside of people and enable them to live the life that they should. And actually brings salvation to people that they come into a relationship with God. That's the mark. When you come into a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, from what the Bible says, we don't understand it entirely, but you come to live inside of God, and he comes to live inside of you. There's this filling of God. He comes into this dwelling of God. And then God, through the Holy Spirit, will enable people to do certain things. There's much that's been made about the difference of how the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the ancient world, and the present world. But there's probably more similarities than there are differences. Suffice it to say here, what he's saying is, David, um, I will enable you to do what I call you to do. I'm going to give you the power that you need to do it. Now notice, a misunderstanding of this passage sometimes is people say, well, David, just, he didn't have anything going for himself. He was you know, kind of a loser, but God took him, and he made him successful. That's not what this passage is saying at all. This passage is saying David was probably the best-looking person in his family. We'll see later he was a gifted musician, already an established musician, already a, a very athletic uh, young man and will become a great warrior. He was a gifted leader. He was gifted for all the things God had called him to. Um, God doesn't call people to do things that he hasn't already gifted them for. In most cases, you, you have the gifts, but then at that point, he has to enable you. In this case, this is an incredible task that David has before him. And what he's saying is, as long as you trust in me and, and lean on me, I will supernaturally enable you to make incredible decisions and win battles you shouldn't win, and I will help you make it. And so he's, and, and what's interesting is the very next verse, he says, I'm going to take the power of the Holy Spirit away from Saul because he's not trusting in me anymore. And so that's the difference that we have here. And then Samuel goes away. Now there's some interesting things for those of you that like literature. There's some, and even for anybody, it's fascinating. From a literary perspective, what the author of this book does, the author may have been Samuel, we're not for sure. But notice how, when's the first time that he mentions David's name? Very end, right? He doesn't mention it to the end. It's like, surprise, I'm talking about David. David's name would be pronounced David. Can you say David? And that means the, the beloved of Yahweh. The one that Yahweh loves. Isn't that a cool name? The other thing we have is what they call an inclusio. Like you have, it starts with anoint, the anointing, and then it ends with the anointing, in this story. And then it, the two verses, one verse says he, he gives one guy the spirit of God, and then he takes the spirit of God away from the other guy. You see how those things are? There's, he's doing all these different devices to to heighten his story. And then finally, he takes Samuel out of the story, and what that shows is from this point on, Samuel's hardly mentioned, this is the finest moment. He makes this guy king of Israel. This is the greatest thing that he does in his life. And then he kind of fades out of the scene. And we have ourselves 
in God's eyes, a new king. How about that? Interesting story. Does that apply to us at all today? I want to talk about how that can apply to us some today in our modern world. Um, three things. First of all, uh, first of all, choose people with good hearts. If God chooses people with good hearts, wouldn't we be wise to do the same? And see, a lot of times we get thrown off. Sometimes, you know, you look at people and you judge a person and you say, because that person's not very good looking or not popular, I don't want them to be my friend. But you can also say, because that person is good looking and popular, they're a snob and I don't want them to be my friend. And you don't get to know the heart behind the person. You see what's going on? You can say that this person like David, I, he's only 15 years of age, he can't be king. But some guys are really mature for their age of 15 and they have good hearts. And so you need to get to know that 15-year-old. Or maybe that 15-year-old needs to get to know a 75-year-old and find out we're not as different as I thought. That person's fascinating. I really enjoy them. Um, and it works through all of life. People have different cultures, different heritages, different backgrounds. And we say, I can never be friends with them. They're too different than I am. But as you get to know them and know their heart, it changes the equation. And it's amazing how you can become friends with people that are, are really very different from you. As you know, their hearts you become good friends um, through the years. So that's a really important thing. So it relates to what? It relates to your friendships, doesn't it? You should be friendly with everyone, but you can't be close friends with everyone, right? You just can't. So as you choose your friends, as you get close to people in your life, you need to choose friends that have a good heart, right? That's what you want to look for. You know, that's that whole idea of being a kindred spirit with somebody. You want somebody ideally um, that, that loves the Lord as well. So if you're dating someone, who should you be dating? Follower, Christian, a follower of Christ. You shouldn't even, you know, that, that makes it easy. You don't have to worry about it. Just don't worry about the people that don't know the Lord. Concentrate on the people that do. Find, find somebody who's a follower of Christ. And ideally, you want somebody you can pray with, read the Bible, and study the Bible with, who you can develop relationships with other believers with, and somebody who you can, you know, go out and serve with and will support you in your job and whatever you're doing. You want that in marriage, you want that in friendship. How about employment? If you are a boss, you're an employer of some sort, you want to look for people that have heart, right? That's very important, and we can bypass that. Some people, some people are, are professionals at their applications and their interviewing, you know, and, their, and all that stuff, their resumes, but they really don't have good hearts. So you have to do the background, call the references, ask the difficult questions, ask them difficult questions to make sure that this person really has good heart. Tom Landry with the, the Dallas Cowboys used to say, I don't care how talented they are. I, I want guys that are talented, but I'll take a guy who's less talented with heart over a guy who's going to give me trouble. And he became famous for cutting guys from his team who were very talented, but they had, they had attitude problems. So you want people that have that good heart. Finally, does it relate at all in church? Did you know that the Bible, in a sense, actually gives us a description of what God thinks a good heart looks like in a person? And it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and again in Titus chapter 1, and we have also mentioned related to it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. We're talking about qualifications for elders, pastors, and leaders within a church. And that's what they should look like. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, actually tells you what they should their competency. They should be very good in leadership, and some of them will be gifted in teaching. So that's what you look for there. So they have to have the abilities to do what they're called to do. But then, what else? They have to have good hearts. 
Now, not everybody will meet all those qualifications. In fact, none of us meet them perfectly. But the idea is, are we basically satisfying them? Are there no red flags? If there's big red flags, then you need to hold those guys accountable. So be, that, I'm talking about me. Be gracious with me. Be kind. You know, I mess up a lot. I have my problems. But, you know, be, be willing to look past some of those things. But at the same time, if there's a red flag, come and talk to me about it. Let me know. Let's hold each other accountable. Because that's what we need to do. Now, the second thing we see is you need to cultivate a good heart for yourself, right? If you want people to be friends that have good hearts, you need to have a good heart. You need to do what they do. First Timothy 3, it's kind of cool, verses 3 through 4. First um, Peter 3. Peter talks about women. And he says, you know, you shouldn't try to be attracted by how you dress and how you act on the outside. Don't, don't put on the look really good. It's not flirting in our day, you know, to flirt with somebody or to wear seductive clothing. You'll get guys, you may not get the guys you want. What you need is a good heart, a quiet spirit. A person who is grounded, a woman who is good, she's going to attract a guy like that. You want a guy like that, then you need to have that kind of heart. And the same thing should be true for you as a guy. You, you know, if you have that kind of heart, those are the kinds of people you're going to attract. So, so have a good heart. Um, and finally, the question is arises, does God still anoint people today? What do you think? The Bible doesn't say about it in the New Testament. The only one mentioned in the New Testament as the anointed one is Jesus. But if we say, does God still call people for special services? Then we probably could say yes. We could say he called Mary to be Jesus' mother. He called Elizabeth to be, um, to be John the Baptist's mother, right? He called um, Peter to start the church. He called um, Paul to start a ministry of the Gentiles, correct? all that stuff going. So he did that, and I think he still calls us today. Um, I feel like, you know, I feel I can say for myself, and I think for all of the guys that are in leadership here on our team, um, the four of us, we feel like we've been called to ministry. We feel like God has given us the gifts and abilities that we struggle with the uh, qualifications, but we're growing in them. We're not breaking them in any dramatic way, and uh, we really love what we do, and it's been affirmed by people, and, and that's why we're here. And so I feel God's called me to this ministry to be a leader in this church, and I need your prayers. First Timothy 2, um, verses 1 through 2 says you need to pray for those in leadership. So if somebody has been called by God, pray for them for that position. And then think about yourself. What has God called you to? Well, you know, I'm, I don't know. You know. Well, what are you good at? What do you like to do? What do people say you're good at? It's not like I go up to Kurt and say, Kurt, you know, how do I do this? And Kurt says, you know, no, he's not a good example because he would tell me the truth. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking somebody else, like Garrett wouldn't, though. Garrett would say, oh, he'd say, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you do, you're pretty good at that. You know, I mean, they're, they're going to tell you the nice thing, right? And so, um, but you, you, when somebody comes up unsolicited and says, hey, Rod, you're really good at that. And then you say, whoa, i got to remember that one. So, and, and then think about it from this way. What is it that God wants you to do? Where does he want you to go? And how can you be open to him? What is God doing? What is he doing with the circumstances around you? You may say, I want to stay. He says, you need to go. You may say, I need to go. He says, you want you to stay. Uh, you may say, I want to do this. He says, I want you to do this. Are you willing to do whatever he wants? Yeah. Good, yeah, because if you do, it's amazing how it all, in the end, comes together, all those pieces that proverbial puzzle will come together and you'll sense him guiding you in life. There's another way that God anoints us today. 
symbolically, when they put the oil over a person's head, it symbolized the Holy Spirit coming over the person's life and filling all the pieces of their body, just filling them up to the fingertips and toes and all. And so spiritually, from a symbolic perspective today, when a person comes into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they recognize that Jesus is God, He died on the cross for the sins and for their sins and rose from the grave, and they say, I want a relationship with Him. I want to surrender my life to Him. And as they surrender their life to Him, it's they become part, they, they become part of His family. The Holy Spirit comes to live in them, and the Holy Spirit anoints them, and that's what makes them a believer. And it's almost like God anointing them as a prince and princess in His kingdom. Just like David was anointed. And so if you're not yet in a relationship with Christ, I encourage you to come talk with me afterwards. And I might have the privilege to be a Samuel and pray for God's, the Holy Spirit to anoint you today for you to come into a relationship with Him. And you can talk to anybody else here that might know the Lord uh, near you. We encourage you to do that or uh, contact us and we'd love to talk to you uh, about how that relationship might happen. So, um, so let's do that. We join you in a word of prayer as we close today. Father, thank you so much for, uh, for the things that you've been teaching us. There's a lot of, a lot of powerful things in your word. And we